right, good morning again. If you will, open with uh, me and your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. Luke, chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 34 to, I think, 39 this morning. Uh, many ways, this is a, a, a second part of last week. We're going to continue the same kind of theme. Uh, as you're turning there, I also just wanted to just share a brief kind of thank you and encouragement to us as a church. Um, lately, we've been having visitors, and I've been able to talk with them and kind of get their first impressions and their reactions. People are just joining our church, and tr I'm not making this up. This has blessed my heart the past, I don't know, month or two. The number one thing people have been saying is, this is a loving church. I, I just, this is, these people love me. I, so many, I, this is my first time here, and so many people have come up to me and talked to me and asked me um, about myself and where I'm coming from. And so um, I just want to say, well done, and thank you, Lord, for making us a loving church. I was reading, if you read with us in the McShane plan, we just read uh, through 1 Thessalonians, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9 and 10, I love what he says here, and it made me think of us. He says, now concerning the love of the brothers, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, for indeed you do practice it toward all the brothers who are in Macedonia. And I was also thinking, I know we have, maybe you know, maybe you don't, but we have many people in the hospital, young and old, and um, we have, I think, four or five meal trains going right now, and so there's just a lot of love and care for the body, and I just want to say thank you, glory to God, and um, I'll give us what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, you don't need me to say this, God uh, is, God is, uh, because he is teaching you to love one another, but then he goes on to say, uh, excel still more. And that's the encouragement, right? Like he says, well done, and then let's continue to love one another. So well done, church, and let's just continue to love one another well as God has taught us to do so. Um, now let's look together at Luke chapter 2. This is the baby Jesus. He is in the temple. His parents are presenting him, and we are seeing two witnesses kind of attest to who Jesus is. We have Simeon and Anna. And we're going to finish up what Simeon has to say, and then we'll look at Anna together. So let's pick it up in verse 34. After he kind of proclaims this, this song, this hymn about who Jesus is, uh, verse 34 begins, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. And then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of Him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And let's just look at verse 39 as well. And when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. So let's just ask God for His help to understand His word one more time. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have breathed it through the instruments of 
men and what we have is your perfect, inerrant, holy word. I thank you there is no error in it. I thank you that we have the mind of Christ here in it. I thank you that we have the very words of God as you have spoken to your people. And Lord, we confess, I confess, we are weak. Uh, We are physically weak. Often we are spiritually dull and we don't always see what we ought to see. We don't always respond as we ought to respond. We don't always worship and obey you as we should. And so we ask right now that you would just help us, God. You would help us to understand what you have said. You would give us eyes to see the wonderful things that you have placed in your word. Help me just to be faithful, Lord, to say only what you have said and explain only what you have said and none of my own wisdom. And I pray that you would transform us by your word. Lord, that it would be your word that affects the way we think about our lives, the way we think about our jobs and our families, the way we think about uh, our country and politics and history. We ask that we would be transformed by your word uh, more than anything else. Uh, to your glory, and for the great name of Jesus to be proclaimed in all of the world. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, the Christian life is, it's a life of action. It is. From the moment you are born again, you have this new life, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, you have the life of Christ in you, you are a living new creation. You, if you are a Christian, you will bear fruit. You are zealous for good works, which God has set in advance for you to do. And I just want to say this, the hardest work of a Christian, the hardest action of a Christian, the one thing that our flesh and our indwelling sin just grates up against more than anything else, the thing that Satan just is pushing up against more than anything else is the hard work of waiting on the Lord. That's the hardest thing, to trust the promises of God, to have faith. It's, it's not a passive thing. Waiting on God is not, oh, I'm just waiting on the Lord and I'm not going to, no. Waiting on the Lord is the hardest work of a Christian. I will actively cling to God and His promises and I will not flee in my own strength or to anyone else's wisdom. I will wait on the Lord. God, in His kindness to us, often puts his children in situations in life where there is no other option, where every human resource has been expended. You have done everything you can do. You have gone, you've used every legitimate means you possibly can. There's nothing else you can do but wait on the Lord, but cling to him by faith. It is his, his kindness to us that he puts us in those situations, that we would learn to wait on the Lord. There's this wonderful passage in Isaiah chapter 40. I'll read it to us. We're familiar with it. And this is a wonderful passage because what it does is it talks about human strength. And what do we think about the quintessential human strength? We think of young, youthful men and their strength and their zeal and their energy. And what God says through the prophet Isaiah is even young men run out of strength. The strongest strength you can find on planet earth, even that runs out. There's another strength, another one we ought to look to. Let me read for us Isaiah 40. I'll read from verse 28 to 31. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, 
the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weary. Have any of us felt weary this week? He gives power to the weary. And to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though youths grow weary and tired, and choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. This is the greatest test of the Christian life. Can I look to my God for strength? Can I wait upon Him by faith? And we see uh, wonderful examples of that in the Scriptures. We think of Abraham who waited how, however long he waited for Isaac. We think of David, though he was anointed king and he was on the run and his enemy was placed again and again in his power. Saul was right in front of him in the cave. He was sleeping with the, David had the spear in his hand. Yet David said, I'm not going to take my enemy in my own strength. I will wait upon the Lord. Even Job is an example as we see in the book of James. He says, Consider the steadfastness of Job, even as he suffered greatly, even as he was imperfect and he, he kind of pressed up against God and challenged God, he was still waiting upon the Lord by faith. You know, we're human beings, and not only that, we're Americans, and we love to value strength. We want to figure it out. We want to exert our will and our ingenuity, um, and we see examples of of that in the Bible. Even Abraham and Hagar, right? God promised us a son, and it's been so long, and so let's just figure out this promise of God, the will of God for my life in my own way, in my own wisdom. We could think of King Saul, the kind of the, the foil, the, the opposite of David, and he was impatient as he was waiting on Samuel, and so he took the sacrifices unto himself. He, he did not wait upon the Lord. Now, I say all this because... As we come to Luke chapter 2, as we come to the birth of Jesus, it's important for us to kind of remember to put ourselves back in that time. This was the darkest time in Jewish history. This was a low point. 400 years had gone by and there was no prophetic word. There was no word from God. The religious life and the leaders were a sham. They were just a bunch of hypocrites. They did all the right stuff externally, yet their hearts were far from God. Politically, they were under the rule of Rome. They were not in control over their own land. They didn't have their own king on the throne. It was a dark time for the people of God when Jesus came into this earth. Now, some of the Jews dealt with it through compromise. Do you know what? Let's just kind of nestle up to Rome and maybe we can figure out, you know, like our political problems that way. Some rebelled against Rome and they took it in their own hands and they physically fought against Rome. Some fled off to the deserts to be in seclusion. They, they thought, I don't know how to deal with this. Let's just run away. Let's just hide away and do our own things. Many likely just kind of settled with no faith and no hope. This is just the way it is. But there were a few, a few Israelites who did the hardest thing to do, and they waited patiently on the Lord. They didn't lose hope. 
They didn't compromise. They didn't fight in their own strength. They didn't run away. They were present where God placed them, and they were waiting patiently on the Lord. And it's to these two, this representation of the remnant, this model for us Christians, as they just decided, I will just patiently wait upon the promises of God. I will, I will daily go and worship and be with the people of God. I'll go to the temple, and I'm just going to keep looking forward to the promises of God. I will look for them for the promised Messiah. And so Luke places these two examples, these two witnesses, these two saints as a, as a model for us of those who are waiting on Yahweh in hope. And, and then from their life and their mouths, Luke shows us many just glorious truths about Jesus that are going to be fleshed out through the rest of this book. And so last week, as we were looking at Simeon, we saw seven things together. We saw Jesus is the comfort of his people in verse uh, 25. We saw he's the focus of the Holy Spirit. We saw he's the one who allows his people to face death in peace. We saw that he is God's salvation. We saw he's the light for the Gentiles. We saw he's the glory of Israel. And then we saw he is a stumbling block. As he went to the cross, he was foolishness to the Greeks and he was powerlessness to the Jews. He was a stumbling block. Now, as we pick it up, we'll pick it up at verse 34. We're going to see three more truths about Christ. I simplified it for us to have three, a nice, clean number for our brains. There, we're going to see two, two more things from Simeon, and then we're going to see one from Anna. So number one this morning, what, what's, what's a truth that we can cling to by faith about our God, about Jesus? Well, it's a surprising truth. It's a difficult truth, it's a painful truth that Simeon wanted to deliver to Mary, and this is the truth. Jesus ordains suffering for his people. Jesus ordains suffering for his people. Uh, for the sake of context, let's read from verse 34 and then we'll read to 30, 35. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And then you see that little dash if you have the legacy standard Bible. If you have the ESV, it may be a parenthesis. Um, what he's about to say is kind of an aside. It's like a side note. He's like speaking about Jesus. And then he, he turns and it's like he looks at Mary in the face and then he has something to say to Mary. And that's what we have at the beginning of verse 35. This is what he says. And a sword will pierce through your own soul as well. He gives this personal, sobering, almost a warning, so to speak. A sword will pierce through your own soul. Now, in the New Testament, there's two words that we uh, translate for sword. There's uh, one that's kind of a shorter sword. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, like a dagger. It's the one that they would carry around with them. Honestly, like an equivalent would be a handgun. It was a, a nifty little weapon that you could pull out. It's the one that Peter said he had on his, uh, what, what he was carrying around. That's the typical word for sword. 
There's this other word for sword. It's more rare, and it communicates a giant, like, two-edged broadsword, the same word uh, that we see of Goliath's sword, this just massive battle sword. Like, you don't see people just casually cruising around town, even in Jesus' day, with this giant battle sword, and yet it's that word that giant broadsword that he uses to marry here. He says, a sword, a huge, a sword of battle will pierce your own soul. I mean, it's this vivid picture, and, and the point he's getting at is this is no prick. This is no just mere discomfort. This will feel like the most excruciating pain you have ever felt into your own soul. You, Mary, will be pierced, this, this almost this fatal wound in your soul. And it may be tempting for us to think, and, and if, if we spend more time listening to um, popular, let's put it that way, top 10 iTunes podcast preachers, it may be tempting to think that following Jesus means your life will be easier than if you weren't following him. We may be tempted to think that. That's pretty much the MO for a false teacher. Let me pitch to you Jesus. Let me sell him to you like a product. You want happiness? You want comfort? You want ease? You want peace of mind? Come to Jesus and he will give you what you want. We may be tempted to think that's, that's the way the Bible speaks about what it is to follow Jesus. And yet, as we'll see as we read through the Psalms, as we see here, what Simeon says to Mary, the life of faith is not a life without pain. A life of faith is not a life without pain. In fact, to walk with Jesus is in a real sense more difficult. You will face trouble because you are following Jesus. You will face trouble because you are a son and a daughter of God. He is, with all of his heart, bent on making you holy and like Jesus. And what that inevitably means is suffering and trials in this life. Simeon tells Mary, and essentially what he is referring to here is that Mary will lose a son. She doesn't get to enjoy her son like all the other mothers do. Um, Her son is not just going to be this kind of familial thing. Her son is different. Her son is Jesus. Her son is the Messiah. Her relationship to him is not a typical mother-son. She is a disciple of Jesus, the Son of God. And ultimately, she will watch her son be rejected by his people, and he will be hung on a cross. And as we see in, if you look at John 19, we see this picture of the mother of Jesus standing there beholding her son as he is hanging on a cross. And what Simeon is doing is he is preparing Mary. He is warning her because of who your son is. And if you want to follow him and worship him, you will face pain. And listen, these words are not just for Mary. These are in the scriptures for the the people of God because... If you place your trust in Christ, you too will face trouble. You will face pain. And in fact, as we see with Mary as our example, the trouble and pain you face may feel 
like a broadsword piercing your own soul. Every true disciple will be treated and hated just like his master. We are called to follow a man who carried a cross. And Jesus says, if you want to come follow me, carry your cross as well. In uh, John 16, I want to read just one verse for us there. Jesus says this to his disciples. He has just broken their hearts. He says, I'm leaving. I'm, I'm going back to my father. And they're troubled about it. And he prepares them for the life they will experience, the life of suffering and rejection they will experience for following him. And in chapter 16, verse 33, we know these familiar words, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. And what we see Simeon doing here, what we see Jesus doing with his disciples, what we see God doing through his word right now is he is preparing his people for suffering. It's a gracious thing for Mary to hear in advance, it's not going to be an easy walk with your son. You are going to experience great trial. You need to know, Mary, in advance, your own soul will feel like it's pierced. Because be assured, when her soul felt like it was being pierced, her mind would go back to these very words. God said it would be this way. God is faithful to his word. This is not some strange thing. This is not some unusual thing. God's not punishing me. This is what God said it would be like. Pastor John Calvin says this uh, to his people. He preached these very words. We should learn then to be prepared for suffering wherever God is pleased to test our faith and endurance. When we are summoned to fight, we should show that we have been to Simeon's school. What a great phrase that is. We've been to Simeon's school. And learn the lesson that a sword may pierce our hearts also. God, through his loving kindness to you right now as a church, as we are sitting under his word, as we are hearing the words of Simeon to Mary, we're in Simeon school. This is Simeon school. This is God graciously saying, you will suffer. You will suffer for following my son. There will be pain in your soul. But remember, this is what is true for all the saints, and this is what is true for Jesus, and this is what God himself has told us in his word. This is part of what it is to walk with God. And what I love is the same word that strengthens us and prepares us also assures us that we're going to make it through. We're going we're gonna to get through our trials, and God will see us home. I just want to read two scriptures of, of encouragement to us. In John chapter 10, Verse 28, Jesus says these words, referring to himself as the good shepherd and us as his sheep. He says, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever and no one will snatch them out of my hand. When you are experiencing the sorrows of life and your own soul feels like a sword has been driven through it, you can also remember these words, Jesus will not lose his sheep, ever. They will never perish, ever. 
That wound will not take your faith from you. Your weakness will not overcome the faith that God has given to you. No one will snatch them out of his hand. And I want to read one more passage for us out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 says this. Paul, in his way, speaking of even those times when our souls feel pierced, he says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outer man is decaying, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is working out for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Even Mary, as she was pierced watching her son be rejected and died on the cross, uh, if her eyes were simply fixed on the temporary, she would have great reason to be uh, in sorrow. And yet what was unseen, what was true, her son was atoning for the sins of the world, and in a few short days he would be back, risen from the dead. He would be ascended in heaven, establishing all things for the counsel of his will. I mean, these are the eternal things that Mary could look to and would sustain her, and these are the same truths that will sustain us. And so Simeon, he takes us to his school of suffering, and he says, yes, saints, you will suffer for following Jesus. The second truth we see in this text is another sobering warning from Simeon, and it's this. Jesus reveals the hearts of all people. Jesus reveals the hearts of all people. Look back at Luke chapter 2, and let's look at verse 35. He says, after the parenthesis, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And it's important to notice this phrase begins with the word that. What is that referring to? What's it referring back to? It's not referring to the parenthesis, which we just heard, which was Mary's kind of personal aside. It's actually referring back to verse 34, what the first thing that Simeon says. And so let's look at that again. Let's look at 34, and then we'll, we'll skip down to hear it again. Behold, verse 34, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, now skip down to that, that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Do you see that connection there? He's saying people are going to reject Jesus, they're going to oppose Jesus, that, what's the purpose of all of that? The thoughts of their hearts may be revealed. And here's really the point he's getting at. How someone responds to Jesus and him crucified, it reveals who they really are. How someone responds to Jesus and his cross reveals the, the state of their heart. It reveals the thoughts of their heart. People will oppose Jesus or they will worship Jesus. How you respond to the, the gospel that Jesus was crucified and risen for the sins of his people, how you respond to that word, that gospel, that truth, how you respond to Jesus reveals your heart. That, that phrase, the thoughts 
from many hearts. That word thoughts is used 13 times in the New Testament. It's used eight times in Luke. And in every time, in every case, it's referring to a thought or an attitude opposed to God. So what this verse is saying is that when people oppose Christ, when they oppose his word, when they oppose the gospel, it's revealing that their thoughts are opposed to God. And I want us to see how Luke fleshes this idea out, because this is one of the main themes of his gospel. As people reject Jesus, I want to see just a few ways in which people's hearts are opposed to God, and, and maybe uh, we will see a bit of our own hearts here. Maybe you don't yet know God, and your heart will be exposed right now as we consider a few passages. So in Luke chapter 4, Verse 16, Jesus begins his public ministry. He goes into the temple. He takes a scroll. He reads a scroll about the Messiah. And then he rolls up the scroll and he, he puts it away. And then he says, what I just read to you about the Messiah coming has been fulfilled today in me. And everyone's thinking, oh, this is amazing. We have wanted the Messiah. They're rejoicing. And now look with me down at verse 22. All were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming from his lips. You know, Jesus is popular in times, at times. He could be popular even to an unbeliever. They're thinking, wow, this is so great. But how will their thoughts that are actually wicked be exposed? Well, Jesus is wise, and look what he goes on to say. Verse 23, he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard took place at Capernaum, do also here in your hometown as well. And this is just, I mean, this is, I just want us to think about this for a moment. Jesus is preaching a sermon, more or less, and everyone's hanging on every word, and they love it, and they love him. And what does Jesus do? He, he's like, I'm going to intentionally offend all of you. You're all praising me? Listen to this. And he says, verse 25, but I say to you in truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Just such a random aside. What are you talking about, Jesus? When the sky was shut up for three years and six months and a great famine came over the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephah in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Do you see what he just did there? Is He is exposing... This inward-looking, kind of this nationalistic, this anti-Gentile attitude of the Jews. And he says, oh, you guys think you understand who I am as the Messiah? Well, have you ever noticed that God was gracious to Samaritans and to Gentiles and he was not to the people of Israel? Have you ever noticed that? He He just says that to this crowd that was hanging on his every word. In verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they stood up and drove him out of the city and led him to the edge of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. That right there is one example of many where Jesus is revealing the thoughts of these religious, pious people who are praising him for his teaching, that he is the Messiah, and yet their hearts are far from God. And what did he just do? He reveals 
their inward hearts. They do not understand the grace of God for sinners, for all people. And so they're going to oppose this word from Jesus. I'll just very quickly have us look at a few. I won't read them all, but in Luke 5, verse 17 through 26, Jesus heals a paralytic. And he does so on the Sabbath. In chapter 6, verse 6 through 11, the same thing. On the Sabbath, he heals a man. And as he's doing this, verse 11 I'll read, but they themselves were filled with rage. Why were they filled with rage? Well, because their man-made works-based righteousness says you can't do anything that we say you can't do on the Sabbath. And Jesus is exposing, you don't even understand the law. God's law makes room for acts of grace and kindness and healing, and yet you think it's all about this restricting works righteousness. You don't understand the law of God. Luke chapter 9, verse 46 through 48 This one's a little closer to home because this is from believers. This is from disciples, and Jesus exposes their thoughts and their hearts. Jesus has just said he is going to begin to head to Jerusalem to die, and then in verse 46 and 47, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. Does that thought ever go through your head as you think about people around you? But Jesus, knowing, and here's that word, what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Jesus saying, you guys do not understand what true greatness is in the kingdom of God. It is to be humble and needy to receive things like a child. I'll do two more for us. Luke chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. Luke 12, 1 through 3. It says, at this time, after so many thousands of the crowd had gathered together, they were trampling on one another. He began saying to his disciples first, be on your guard for the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. But there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed on the rooftops. He's saying, God knows the motives of your heart. He knows the motives of everyone's hearts. And no one will get away with their hypocrisy in the long run. And then finally, Luke 24. This is Jesus after he was resurrected and he's on the road with those two disciples to Emmaus. And here we see that these two disciples were unbelieving in the resurrection. They didn't understand what the scriptures said, and Jesus reveals those thoughts of their hearts. I'll look at verse 36. Oh, actually, this is after the road, and he appears to his disciples. He says this in 36. While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace to you. But being startled and frightened, they were thinking they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. Jesus says even to us, to believers, I know the doubts you have in your hearts. Why are your hearts troubled? Why do you doubt what my word says? Jesus exposes the hearts of men. And in John 3.19, it says the light came into the darkness. And what does darkness do? It says they, they ran from the light for their works were evil. And it's just 
important for us to recognize there's no neutrality with Jesus. There's no like middle ground. There's no like, I'm, yeah, I'm like good with Jesus. No, he reveals the state of our heart. We either respond to Christ in faith and we trust and love and walk with him or anything else is, is a rejection of Christ. And what he is doing in his word as the word is taught, as the gospel is proclaimed, is it exposes the hearts of men. And I want to just say, if you have not yet trusted in Christ, if you are, are not convinced of who he is, I want you to know he knows your heart, he sees your rebellion to him, but, but also know this, Jesus came to die for people like you, for sinners. That's why he came. He came, as we'll see in the Gospel of Luke, for the sick as a doctor. He came to save sinners. And all that is required of you, listen, is not some formalism, some go to church and do the thing. No, he knows our hearts. He wants our hearts. What is required of you is to trust him, to receive his grace. He went to the cross and he died and he bled so whoever would trust in him would be forgiven of their sins and would be saved for eternal life. That is the offer to you. The book of Revelation says he has eyes like flaming fire and the day will come and you will stand before Jesus and he will see all the way down into your heart. But there is hope for us all as we trust in him and what he has done for us on the cross. And so for the saints, I want, I think our application for this point is this, God is graciously still exposing our hearts. He's lovingly revealing what we have kind of hidden away. Maybe some doubts over here, maybe some flesh over here, maybe an unconfessed sin over here, maybe a lack of love or patience over here. Take heart, he is exposing you because he loves you and is sanctifying you. And one of the most encouraging scriptures to my own heart is in 1 Thessalonians 5, Jesus will see your holiness through. He will sanctify you. God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Spirit are actively making his children holy right now. He will get the job done. I want to read 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 through 24. Listen to this promise if you are a son or daughter of God. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. He will make you holy. He will make you blameless in your heart and in your body. He is faithful. He will make us holy. And so we ought not to run from his all-seeing gaze as our hearts are exposed before him, we ought to run to him to cling to his blood, to his righteousness, and then to his fatherly hand to sanctify and disciple and discipline us to make us holy. And so we've seen Jesus ordained suffering. Luke 2, back to Luke 2, we see he reveals the hearts of men. And now finally, this final little example of this little story of Anna. And here's the final point. Jesus satisfies his waiting people. 
He satisfies the hearts of his people as we wait upon him. And so he, he draws out a bit this, this woman. Let's look at verse 36. There was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. I just want to notice a few things here. Luke belabors the credibility of this woman. He says uh, she was a prophetess. Now, the scriptures only talk of a few prophetesses by name explicitly. We have Miriam, Deborah, this woman Huldah in 2 Kings, Isaiah's wife, and that's all the explicit prophets in the Old Testament who are women. And then in the New Testament, we have Philip's daughters, and then we have some unnamed women who are prophesying in 1 Corinthians. That's all we get. So Anna is in like no small company. She's not just some obscure, I mean, she is a prophetess. She's on Mount Rushmore of female prophets. She's a big deal, and Luke wants us to know that. This is no small thing. Her name, Anna, in Hebrew is Hannah, which means grace. Uh, her father was Phanuel, and the Hebrew word for that is Peniel, which if you can think all the way back to Genesis, when Jacob wrestled with God in his tent, and then he said, this is the house of God. I've seen him face to face. He names it Peniel, which means face to face. It seems that uh, they were from that area. She was of the tribe of Asher. And what's significant about Asher is that it wasn't significant. Uh, it, there's never any famous person from, from Asher. They weren't particularly faithful in the exile. They were forgotten. People stopped keeping track of who were from that tribe. And yet, here is someone from the obscure tribe who still knew where her tribe was. She knew, I belong to the tribe of Asher. The whole point of all of this is this is a true Israelite. This is someone who is honorable in the eyes of the Jews. She is a worthy candidate to be a witness to the Messiah. But that's not all Luke wants to emphasize. Then he goes on, uh, and sorry if this offends some of you with gray hairs, but he goes on to emphasize how old she is in verse 36 and 37. He says, she was advanced in years. The Hebrew word is very old in her many days. It's like a Hebrew expression, like you're very old in your many days. And the point in that culture, unlike our culture, where we can make fun of people for being old, is if you were old, you were respected and trusted. You were a trustworthy witness. And that's the emphasis here. And then he says, she was a virgin before she was married, and she remained a virgin after she was widowed. And then it says, she was a widow to the age of 84. And it's a little interesting note. That phrase is a bit ambiguous. Our translations just picked uh, an option for us, but it may mean she was a widow for 84 years. So typically, a young girl gets married around 13 or 14. She was married for, what was it, seven years, and then, so what puts her around 21, and then 84 years, that puts her well over, if this is to be taken this way, well over 100 years old. I mean, she is very old in her many days. And then he, he goes on not only to talk about her age, not only her ethnicity and how she is this honorable, faithful Israelite. Then he goes on to talk about her devotion to God. He says in verse 37, she never left the temple. That's pretty extreme, right? Serving night and day with fasting and prayers. This is a model widow. 
Oftentimes we think of the church ought to just give free charity away to anyone and anyone. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, don't even let certain widows in to receive charity until they're a certain age, and then only let in certain kinds of widows, those who are faithful and are serving the church. And it says here, she would be one of those types of widows. She was serving, which in this context is referring to worship. How was she worshiping? With fasting and prayers. Why would she be fasting? What's the point of fasting? Does fasting make God proud of you because you are skipping food? Is that how fasting works? What is fasting all about? Fasting is a statement that all is not well. Something's not right. And I'm, I'm intentionally with, withholding care to my body as this expression of I am waiting on God to make something right. That is biblically why people fast. Something is not right. And so I'm afflicting myself, as the Old Testament refers to it, to, to make me cling to God to make something right. This woman is holy, but she is not all is, all is not well in her soul. She is waiting on God. She is afflicting herself, waiting for God. And then she's praying. Not only am I just going to wait, I'm going to actively pray, God, make it right. Make it right with my people. My people are not following you as they should. I am going to fast and pray and wait on your promises. And I just want to make a side note real quick on spiritual disciplines because they're really popular, especially for whatever reason in our area at this time. Like spiritual disciplines is like this kind of edgy, like, yeah, you're like a super Christian if you do these spiritual disciplines. And I, I think we need to remember uh, Spiritual disciplines are not to be, this is a crude word that many old commentators uh, referred to it as this week, and I'll use it. Spiritual disciplines are not to be aped. We're not to just do something externally, like a monkey can. I can do this. Look at God. Look what I can do for you. I am not eating. Look how much I pray. Look how often I go to church. That is not what a spiritual discipline is. It is not some external affliction on our body to somehow like compel God to do something for us or to think better of us. That is not what a spiritual discipline is. And what is so tempting is when we see this godly old woman and we see her external actions, we think, I want to do what she does. And so we just start doing the stuff without the soul of Anna. If we do that, we're no better than apes, copycatting what is the, the soul of a spiritual discipline, and here it is, is faith. That's the point. I'm trusting in God. I am fasting so that this pain will remind me to go to God. The, the value is a physical reminder, I need to go back to God, and I need to trust in Him and in His Word. Insofar as it does that, it's a valuable tool. If it's something you're getting favor with God or you're like, hey, I'm shedding a few pounds and I'm getting favor with God and this is, I look cool. Listen, that is not a spiritual discipline. You are serving your flesh. Ironically, you are. A spiritual discipline is, is to get our souls to wait upon the Lord, to trust in Him, to cling to Him by faith. God doesn't want our endless heaping up words of prayers. He doesn't want our endless just external actions when our hearts are far from him. And what we can see from Anna is her soul was in it. She fasted and she prayed because she was waiting 
for the redemption of Jerusalem, as verse 38 said. She was clinging to God by faith. Insofar as you do that kind of spiritual discipline, praise God for it, as it leads us to go to the Lord by faith. And so we see this picture, this Israelite, she was trustworthy, she was faithful in character, but above all, she had faith, she was clinging to God. He sets all of that up, and in verse 38, this is what Luke says, and at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And just a few things to see here. What is the first thing she does? She gives thanks to God. Unlike Simeon, who was unique, right? He picked up the baby and he starts pro- like prophesying and then he's like talking to them. It's like she comes and then she just says, thank you, God. You have done what my soul has been waiting for. You have satisfied, you have fulfilled my longings that you have given to me from your promises in your word. You have done it. Thank you, God. And then she's overflowing and she can't hold it in and she starts telling other people, God has done it. He has fulfilled his promises. He has brought his Messiah. A little grammar nugget. These verbs, giving thanks and continue to speak, are in what's called the imperfect tense, which means she didn't stop doing it. She just kept going on giving thanks to God and telling others of what he had done. And I love this picture of Anna because she's not like a, she's not the same as Simeon. Simeon, whatever age he was, his response was like, I'm ready to die. Let me just lay down and go to heaven. Here we see this either 84-year-old or like 104-year-old, and it's like she comes to life when she sees Jesus. It's like she just starts overflowing with praise and thanksgiving and evangelism and telling people, look at what God has done. And here's the lesson that we ought to get from Anna. For those who wait in faith upon the Lord and his promises, we will be satisfied. There will be a satisfaction for our desires as we wait upon the promises of God. Jesus will satisfy our souls. She was fasting. She was withholding something from her, waiting for God to bring about his Messiah. And I, can, I, I, I think I can say, pretty good chance she ate dinner that night. She was thinking, he did it. He has satisfied my souls. He has fulfilled what I have been fasting for, what I have been praying for, what I have been longing for. And I want to read just two verses for us that we can cling to as we wait on the Lord and as we think of how he satisfies us. Psalm 130, verses 5 through 8. Psalm 135 through 8. This is such a great passage, really encapsulates. Anna is an embodiment of this text Psalm 130, verse 5, I hope for Yahweh, my soul does hope, and for his word do I wait. My soul waits for the Lord, more than the watchman for the morning, the watchman for the morning. O Israel, wait for Yahweh, for with Yahweh there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption. It is he who will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. 
So what do we do when we're afflicted or when we're in, in a, a season of trial or when we're waiting on the Lord? We cling to his word and to his promises, and then we look to the east in our souls knowing the sun will rise more than the watchmen watch for the morning. I am expecting Yahweh to satisfy my soul through his word. And then one more, Isaiah chapter 52. We looked at this last week. The first half is really fulfilling what Simeon was getting at, but I want to read verses 8 through 12. And this is heading into uh, a passage, Isaiah 53, where we know this picture, this prophecy of Christ um, coming to be crucified. This is what comes right before Isaiah 52, verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voices. They shout joyfully together, for they will see with their eyes when Yahweh returns to Zion. Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch nothing unclean. Go out of the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who carry the vessels of Yahweh. But you will not go out in haste, nor will you go out as those who flee, for Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And then it goes on to proclaim who this Yahweh, this servant of Yahweh is, and how he was pierced for our transgressions like a lamb. He went to the cross. And and I want us to end with this last thought, and I think... um, If you turn back to Luke, verse 39 has more in it than we may think. I want us to close with this final thought. As we've seen these two watchmen waiting and are finally satisfied in Yahweh as he's brought his Messiah, Luke includes this little verse, and it seems as often is the case, it's kind of like, all right, we're just wrapping it up. Let's just fill in the details. But there's, there's more here, and I want us to notice this before we close. Verse 39, when they had finished everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. We see they were in Jerusalem. They did, or they, they were in Galilee. They went to Jerusalem. He did what he did what the law required of them. All of this happened, and they go back home to Galilee. Now, Luke 2, really Luke 1 and 2 is like, a, is like a prologue, it's a preface, it's introducing a lot of the themes that are going to come in the rest of the book. And in Luke 2, we just wrapped up, we concluded a, a little journey, so to speak, right? You, you have it, this chapter begins in Nazareth, in the region of Galilee, and the census drew them out of their area to Bethlehem, and then from Bethlehem all the way to Jerusalem, and from Jerusalem all the way into the temple. We've seen this journey And then we wrap it up and they go back home. Now, the entire book of Luke can be viewed geographically as a journey from Galilee to Jerusalem to the temple and ultimately to the crucifixion of Jesus. That's Luke is this great author. He, he does this great literary themes and movements. And then he actually has a whole journey motif in Acts as well. The, the whole theme of Acts could be from Jerusalem all the way on this journey to Rome. And what does that mean metaphorically? Well, what started here is going to go to the ends of the earth. But the the theme in Luke is what started in this little town in Galilee, this little town in uh, Nazareth and then Bethlehem. Something big is going to happen in Jerusalem. 
And this whole book is kind of always driving to it. And in Luke chapter 9, it says Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And from Luke 9 all the way on, it is a journey, literally, as they are walking towards Jerusalem, as he's teaching all these parables, and he's walking through the land, and he's ultimately ending at the cross. What Luke is reminding us, even in this little section here, is all of this book, all of the life of Jesus, all of these prophecies and fulfillments, all the, the fulfillment of the law here as a baby, it is all heading towards the cross. That's where this book is going. Now, why is that? Well, because it's at the cross where all of the promises of God come to pass. Even of this text, that is where we find our salvation, the forgiveness of of sins. It's where the, the hope of the Gentile world is found on the cross. That though you were once not a people, in Christ he has died for the sins of his people. If you will trust in him, you will become one of his own. The cross is the glory of Israel, where the Messiah came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The cross is the comfort of God's people is the cross is where we can find uh, hope in our own death as Christ died, took the sting of death, and rose again. The cross is the stumbling block for the unbelievers. The cross is what our world and unbelieving world have tripped over and will continue to trip over. But ultimately, the cross is where we find Christ, where we find life in Christ, the promises of God, our hope and our satisfaction and our salvation. And so as we now are beginning to move into the rest of the book proper, just keep this in our mind. We are always heading towards the cross. The shadow of the cross, so to speak, hangs over the entire book of Luke. And so God, I, I just want to thank you for your word, and I thank you for these faithful witnesses who went before us to testify to the glorious person and work of Jesus. And I thank you for the, the few promises that we focus on this morning. Lord, that, that though you ordain sorrow for your saints, um, I thank you that there is not only the cross, but there is a resurrection, and that you are working all things for the good, for our salvation, for those who trust in you. Lord, I thank you for the sobering words, Jesus, that you expose the hearts of men. Would we not be surprised as we see you, Christ, opposed in this world? But would we be quick to proclaim the gospel knowing it is the power of God? I thank you that you are making us, your people, holy through our time with Christ and your word. And finally, we thank you that you satisfy your people. You, Jesus, are the bread of life. You are uh, the fulfillment of all the promises of God. They are all yes and amen in you. And I pray like Anna, you would make us, you would make our souls like watchmen, just looking to the Lord, looking to his promises, waiting patiently in faith that you will fulfill your promises because we know, Christ, that as you came, you are coming again. You are coming again to bring your people home, to make a new earth, where there will be no more sorrow or sin or suffering. We thank you, Jesus, for your life, your holy law-fulfilling life, and we thank you for your sacrificial death on the cross where all of our sins have been atoned for, been washed away. 
would we now worship you and give thanks to you as Anna did before us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.